Hello everyone and thanks for joining. We'll get going in just a moment. Hello, this is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Reliability and thanks for joining us today for this best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke as a test tools provider and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record and it happens via a framework that we call Fluke Connect. Our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies, and that's why we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation, I have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We'll be answering questions both during the presentation and afterward during Q&A. So take a minute now and find the questions tool in the GoToWebinar dashboard. Please feel welcome to submit questions as we go. I will share as many of your questions as time allows for presenters to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we'll follow up with written answers. And if you'd like to receive slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. So don't hang up until the survey appears and you've answered the question. We're also happy to send you a certificate of attendance after today's webinar. You'll see a question on the survey about getting a certificate. If you answer yes, we'll send one to you. A recording of this webinar will be available on the Excelix.com website within a day or two. And that's it for housekeeping. So now for the main event. Today we are so pleased to have with us Sonia Mathura, a published author, expert, and frequent presenter on lubrication degradation. She'll be presenting on root causes of lubrication degradation and how to prevent it from harming your machines. Sonia is the founder Managing Director and Senior Consultant of Strategic Reliability Solutions based in Trinidad. She works with global affiliates in reliability and asset management to serve her clients. For several years, Sonia has solved lubrication problems in the automotive, industrial, marine, construction and transportation industries in Trinidad and Tobago, as well as much more broadly internationally. She recently attained her Machinery Lubrication Engineer Certification for the International Council of Machinery Lubrication, becoming the first in her country to secure the certification. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical and Computer Engineering and a Master of Science in Engineering Asset Management. So big welcome to Sonia. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for having me, Leah. I'm very, very excited today to present this topic to you. I know it's been um, a crazy 2020 mm -hmm. and we are going into 2021. But, you mm -hmm. know, it's all good. It's all good. And I want to make sure that a lot of people understand what we talk about when we say lubricant degradation mechanisms and we talk about your root causes because it affects your machines and we all need a lot more reliability going forward in the industry. So I'm very happy to present to you all today on this topic. 
I have to say, Sonia, that your dedication to reliability maintenance and to lubrication specifically is very impressive. And I want to ask, do you think that the role or the importance of lubrication analysis has changed uh, over the last five or 10 years? I think it has. And I think it has a lot to do with changes in the industry. Okay. So if we start thinking about uh, the way things were 10 years ago compared to how it is now, we've had a lot of changes. Let's just think about cell phones for a minute. I don't think I'll be able to survive this pandemic <laughs> if I had one of those non-internet cell phones. It would not work, right? right. So same thing with our machines. Our machines have changed a lot over the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And when machines change, your lubrication as well changes because you have different clearances, you have different OEM specs, you have different um, stuff for the environment that they want to make sure the environment is, you know, we're not harming the environment. So your lubricant has to undergo some sort of change. Mm -hmm. And the way that we've been going forward with the industry and so much innovation, lubricant analysis is changing. As your machine is changing, as you are evolving, we are all in this process together. So definitely there has been a major change, um, I would think, in lubrication practices. And there should, let me rephrase that, there should have been a major change because there are some people who are still using practices from 20 ah, years ago today. Sure, sure, so sure, we sure. should have changed, definitely should have changed. And what we could think about um, when we think about that is um, if we had a 20-year-old machine and we swapped that out for a new machine, you should not be using the same procedures for the 20-year-old machine with your two, with your right. two-year-old machine or your new machine. So right. we have changes and uh, the sector is constantly evolving. So we just need to be open to change as we have seen over the past year and be able to adapt to change and be able to make that change so that we can help the industry. Reliability concerns everybody. So we wanna make sure that we play our role and our part in that. That is a wonderful answer, thank you. And thank I you. can't wait to get started. So please continue. All right, let's go. So if you don't know about my company yet, you should, you know, get on social media and check us out. I am the owner and the founder of Strategic Reliability Solutions Limited. And one of the things that we wanted to do with this company was merge reliability and have a strategic reliability solution for anything within the industry. So we do a lot of stuff with root cause analysis, maintenance task analysis, maintenance planning and scheduling, RCMR. And of course, we are bringing in a lot more stuff with duplication. So we're just trying to make sure that you have the full reliability package and definitely help you to go forward. Now, what we're covering today and where even though you would see the word lubricant degradation a lot here, it actually helps you to understand what is going on with your machine. So four of the main topics that we're covering, we're covering the definition of lubricant degradation, because we need to know what it is. We're gonna talk about the methods of identifying degradation, the lab tests, because we can't just identify degradation and not know what lab tests we're gonna do. And of course, we have to talk about dealing with degradation, 
because that's what we really need to do. If we understand that we have it, we need to be able to deal with it. And I want to jump, before we get into the, all of this great exciting thing, um, I want to find out a little bit more about you all. So I know Leah will open the poll in a little bit, but I want to find out what sector do you work in? Are you in engineering? Are you in oil and gas? Are you in manufacturing? Are you in another sector that we want to check out? So let us know a bit more about our audience today with the poll. You would see a little sign pop up to say that the poll is open. So let us know which sector you are working because you all know a little bit about Leah. You all know a little bit about me. You all know about fluke reliability. Let's find out about our audience this morning. Perfectly said, and audience, you are on it. We already yeah. have 65% of the audience voting. I'd like to get us up to 75%. Well done. Um, and I, as as Sonia just said, this will this will help us um, yeah. tailor the rest of, of today's conversation to you. All right, we are at 77%. Yes. Uh, hopefully, everyone's gotten their vote in. I'm going to share the results now. Sonia, we have 26% of people in engineering. 14% in oil and gas, 13, uh, 37% in manufacturing, and 23% uh -huh. who are in other, and obviously other is a very large category. So leading with manufacturing, but then followed mm -hmm. closely by engineering. Oh, well done. I love this crowd. It's definitely, <laughs> definitely what we're looking at. Yes, we always have a fabulous audience. Yes, All right, yes. so with that information, we're back to presentation mode. Oh boy. I appear to have messed with your screen. There you go. All right, okay. I'm gonna turn it back over to you. Totally fine there, we're good with that. <laughs> so let's get into the definition of lubricant degradation. And this is one thing that I would want you all to understand. And I'll go into why you all need to understand it. But before we get there, we need to know what the functions of a lubricant are. Because guess what? We need to understand our basics before we get into the more complex stuff. And what we found within the industry is that a lot of times the basics, they just get passed over. So I want you to help me also this one, our audience, whether you're an engineer in manufacturing, other oil and gas, I'm sure you all can help us with this. One of the things that I like to help people do is, if can you rub your hands together I can't, I, I, you know, I can't see your web thumbs right now, but if you rub your hands together and you keep rubbing your hands faster, this actually helps for those who are in winter right now. I know they would need the heat, the extra heat. In Trinidad, not so much, because we have heat all the time. But if you start rubbing your hands a bit faster, you'd realize that your hands start getting a bit hotter. So you start getting increased friction. Now, if you were to use, uh, cream or some sort of lubricant between there, you'd realize that you would not have as much friction. So your cream in that instance acts as a lubricant. If it acts as a lubricant, what it has done is reduced the friction, minimized wear, if your hands have some damages to it, it's gonna distribute your heat because your hands aren't gonna get as hot anymore. It's gonna remove some contaminants and it's going to improve your efficiency. Now, what I want you to think about here is an engine starting on a morning. All of your oil is to the bottom of your, your stump. 
before you even start your car. But when you start your car, your engine starts working, your pistons start moving, everything starts moving. But it starts moving a lot faster than our hands. So can you imagine that working and moving without any lubricant? Then you definitely have a lot more wear, you'd have a lot more friction going on before you actually get the lubricant there. And being able to understand the functions of a lubricant helps you to understand when it would fail. So that's why we need to cover the basics with what does this have to do with lubricant degradation? And what does that mean for your equipment? Now, when a lubricant gets into your equipment, it's basically a bit sacrificial in that from the time it enters your equipment, it's gonna start changing. It's gonna have deterioration because its purpose, as we found out before, is to reduce your friction, improve your efficiency. So it starts working from the moment it gets into your equipment. And once that happens, you will start having lubricant degradation. But our cause for concern would be when your lubricant degrades to a point where it can no longer protect your system. If it no longer protects your system, then that means that your equipment is actually at risk. And what happens there is that we have this age old um, tale within the industry. And some people say that a lubricant doesn't fail. It's really the machine that fails. And we have two sides to that. If we think about it from a common sense point of view, if a lubricant does not provide one of its main functions, then it has failed. So essentially, if it's not providing one of its functions, you're, you're basically saying that it has failed, but it may have failed due to your equipment and the equipment conditions. So that's where we have that, um, that saying in the industry that um, a lubricant doesn't fail, but a lubricant does fail. If it doesn't provide one of its main functions, it is going to fail, and by extension, your machine will fail. So they both kind of work together. So when your equipment starts um, experiencing lubricant degradation, what happens is that you have downtime, you have a decrease in product quality, because your equipment is not working the way it's supposed to, your output is going to be reduced. And guess what? Your finance people are going to come at you because you're going to start making changes and asking for increases in your budgets, uh, different parts, all of these things. So lubricant degradation works hand in hand with your equipment. If we can understand that, what it does to your equipment, then what we can do is actually prevent certain things from happening. And with that being said, we have different modes of degradation. And within the industry, there are a lot of people who say that we only have three modes of degradation, but that's not entirely true. And the reason they may say that there are three modes, it's because they are classifying them according to some environmental trigger. But when we go through this presentation, you will understand a lot more why there are more than three different uh, types of degradation modes, because each mode produces its own very unique characteristics and they need to have special environmental conditions. So your six modes of lubricant degradation would be oxidation, 
thermal degradation, microdiseling, electrostatic spark discharge, additive depletion, and contamination. And throughout the presentation, if you all have any questions, you know, let us know, because we're here to answer questions as well. Let us know as soon as you have any questions. Now, since we know the different modes, let's go into the methods of identifying degradation. I'm just gonna pause a little bit just to find out if we have any questions. We do have one question oh, that's come do. through. Okay, great. And you may choose to hold until later, uh, uh -huh. but someone has already asked what you recommend on using uh, for assets that are exposed to fine particles of PVC to prevent buildup and rust. This being okay. related to linear bearings and ball screw applications. Ooh. That actually works with the degradation mode of contamination, and we are actually going to get into that and how you Perfect. can prevent that in a bit. So we are going to okay. put a pin in that, and we're going to come back to that question. But that was a great question. Thank you for that. Very good. All right. So let's get into the modes of identifying degradation, because we need to know the different modes. And the reason that we need to know the different modes it's because if we can identify what's going on, which mode is happening, then we can take certain steps to actually stop it or to reduce the frequency of it happening. Now, with oxidation, oxidation is the degradation mode that gets so much attention all of the time. Every time uh, a lubricant starts to degrade, the first thing people say, it's oxidation without even doing any tests or anything. But there are certain things that are characteristic to oxidation. And in essentially what oxidation is, is that it's the addition of oxygen to the base oil. And I want you to remember that it's to the base oil. And it can, act, it can actually form aldehydes, ketones, hydroperoxides, carboxylic acids. Why are we talking about all these chemical names and why do you need to know that? Because with oxidation, these are the products that are being produced. So if you have oxidation in an ammonia system, for example, and you have ammonia getting into your oil, then the ammonia is going to react with your carboxylic acids to produce ammonia salts. And only when you do your lab test, then would you get the results of having ammonia salts in your lubricants and you're going to wonder how did that get there but by knowing that you have carboxylic acids being produced from oxidation then you have an idea and then you can figure out your root cause of what is causing that oxidation so that's why it's very critical to know how these processes actually happen and there are different stages to oxidation like anything in life but your main causes of oxidation will be oxygen and temperature with oxidation you're First stage is initiation. So that's when you start having a free radical come out of the lubricant and it goes into the catalyst. Now radicals, they just love a lot, a lot of friends. So what they wanna do is that they wanna propagate and they want to get more radicals. So the more radicals that they have, they are bouncing around the system, wreaking havoc and depleting your antioxidants. And they will get to a point where the antioxidants have been depleted completely from your oil and then they start acting on your base oil and remember we said in the slide before it's the addition of oxygen to your base oil so only when you all of your antioxidants have been depleted 
and you have the termination stage, that's what stops. And that's when you have the oxidation starting. So very critical to note the different processes or the different stages of oxidation. So as you know what is going on in your machine and where you can actually implement different measures. So knowing the stages are fine, but what happens with oxidation? What are the results of oxidation? And with oxidation, you actually get varnish and varnish is a wide phrase that could be used for a lot of things. But you'd see varnish, you'd see sludge. One of the things you always notice is an increase in viscosity. You'll always know that your base oil breaks down. Because remember, we talked about that before, the oxygen attacks the base oil. And then you have additives being depleted, like your antioxidants. And of course, you have a loss in anti-foaming properties. So these are the things that you can expect to see if you have oxidation occurring in your equipment. So just something for you to note. And now another one, thermal degradation. Now, a lot of people get thermal degradation and oxidation mixed up because they're like, this should be the same thing, but they are not. With thermal degradation, what I want you to think about here is that the lubricant is undergoing so much heat that it actually cracks. So when that happens, you actually have temperatures in excess of 200 degrees Celsius. That's very hot. It's, it's almost 35 in Trinidad and I can't survive that. Imagine what your machines may be going through. So when the temperatures go up to 200 degrees C, you have the sharing of the molecules. And what you would notice is a decrease in viscosity. And I want you to pay attention to that because that's one of the main differences between oxidation and thermal degradation, that decrease in viscosity. With oxidation, you have an increase in viscosity. And of course you have polymerization with thermal degradation. But when you have thermal degradation occurring, when those molecules share, what happens is that you can have two processes. Either it volatizes, <clears throat> which means it evaporates and it doesn't leave any deposits. That's good for us. We don't have any cleanup to do. Or it could condense. If it condenses, what happens there is that you have dehydrogenation, dehydrogenation and you would actually have coke being formed as a final deposit and other different deposits formed in between because you have your actual base lubricants being degraded. So that's the process of thermal degradation. Now, this we is do just- have a uh, quick question. Oh, is this no, okay time to, to yes, interrupt? Yes, yes. Okay, because you may be about to explain this, but there's a question okay. about how <laughs> oxidation increases viscosity. Oh, so oxidation would increase your viscosity because you have oxygen being added to your base oil. And what happens there is that it's going to produce different varnishes and different sludge and deposits. And that would actually increase your viscosity in oxidation. With thermal degradation, on the other hand, you cracked the lubricant. So you actually broke up the lubricant. And what I want you to think about there is a stick of butter. And if you heat a stick of butter, it's going to turn into oil. So you've changed the viscosity of that. That's what happens with thermal degradation. So thermal degradation have a decrease in viscosity compared to oxidation, where okay. you're adding stuff on. And let us know if that answers your question. That helps as well. <laughs> okay. And someone else would like to know mm -hmm. if you are going to talk to nitration and sulfation. Nitration and sulfation. 
we're not doing too much on that today because we're focusing on the actual degradation mechanism and okay. that would that would fall in a different category we'll connect you with with that person yeah. later and we can we can talk some more on that one okay yeah? back to you good so we were talking about the differences between oxidation and thermal degradation and just like the question before brought in brought us to the slide with oxidation you have the increase in viscosity but with thermal degradation you definitely have that decrease in viscosity and of course you have a difference in terms of the deposits that are being produced with oxidation with oxidation you have sludge and varnish thermal degradation you have lacquer and carbonaceous deposits so there are differences between the two of them and it's very very critical to know that because if you don't know that then you don't know what measures you need to implement or to get your equipment working to where that it's supposed to now another form of lubricant degradation is micro -dieseling. this has nothing to do with diesel but they love the word they love the term so with micro -dieseling, what i want you to think about is you have uh, air being entrained in your oil so it's actually in your oil and it moves from a low pressure zone to a high pressure zone and what happens is that the air on the inside it actually gets to a temperature in excess of a thousand degrees celsius that is ridiculously hot now for my guys that are familiar guys and girls that are familiar with uh, lubrication for every 10 degree rise above 60 degrees celsius your oil life is essentially halved so 1000 degrees c is a lot more than 60 degrees so you're basically killing your oil there so with that localized temperature in excess of a thousand degrees celsius your bubble interface actually becomes carbonized and that's when you see the oil you know changing color rapidly because of oxidation so with micro dieseling it's almost similar to having air entrained in your system kind of similar to cavitation so it is almost a form of that but with micro dieseling you have two different conditions now you either have a low flash point with a low implosion pressure or a low flash point with a high implosion pressure it's always going to be a low flash point because you're in the oil still you're not going to have high flash points now the difference between the types of pressure that is experienced with micro dieseling uh, would be if you have a high implosion pressure i want you to think about that sort of like an explosion so if you have an explosion you're going to have incomplete combustion so with that high implosion pressure you're going to have soot tars and sludge but if you have a low implosion pressure you're actually going to get varnish from different carbon insolubles which could include coke tars and resins so it is different from actual thermal degradation. And just be aware that microdieseling in itself is a different degradation mode. Now, electrostatic spark. One more question. Oh, we have one more question. Yeah, we do. Good. Actually, we have, we have a couple. They're, they're coming in, which is great. Nice. <laughs> so, can the degradation of lubricant mm -hmm. cause vibration, excess vibration in machines? Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, definitely yes. If so, if you think about a bearing and the 
when you have varnish being added into your system, what that does is that it changes your clearance level. So if it changes your clearance level, what happens is that you start seeing that in, in your vibration readings, because it's not, it's gonna pick that up, especially if you have um, different, you would notice that your shaft changes your, your amplitude. So there is definitely a correlation between your, your vibration and the amount of varnish in your system if the varnish is plating out. And that's, okay. that's what you need to be aware of. If it's remaining in solution, then you're not gonna see anything because it's not adding to the different layers to cause that difference in clearance. So that's one thing you need to be aware of. Excellent answer. Here's another thermal degradation question. Okay. With thermal degradation of a GST 68, what uh -huh. percent viscosity would you expect to see at 240 degrees? Okay, so at 240 degrees, I believe that should be, is that Fahrenheit or is that Celsius? You'd have to clear that up for me. But with a GST, um, can you remind me of the, the viscosity again? GST 68. Oh, 68. So with 60, with a 68, what we need to remember is that with all of these different viscosities, you have a plus or minus 10%. So even though it's 68, you would have, it falls within a range. So it can either be less than 68 minus 6.8. That is, what is that again? That's about 62. So once it passes out of your ISO 68 range, then we would definitely have an issue with viscosity. And if it goes up to over 240, if you're talking about C, it's gonna be a lot lower than that 62, throwing it out of the range of the 68. So if you have an increase, and just for those who are not aware of the differences with your ISO codes, with your ISO codes, you have the ISO uh, 22, 32, you have uh, 46, 68. Each code is within a range of 10%, plus or minus 10%. And what all the manufacturers will not tell you is that even though it says a GSC 68, its actual uh, viscosity may not be exactly 68. It can go uh, plus plus 10% or minus 10%. So it can be within the range of 62 to about 74. So once it falls within that range, it is classed as an ISO 68 oil. So it really depends on your manufacturer and the exact uh, viscosity. But typically, with especially with hydraulic oils, you would see the change of viscosity based on your temperature in a chart that they have associated with your TDS. So I'm not sure exactly for that GSP 68, but we may be able to pull that up from the chart. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm going to let you proceed so that we make sure okay. you get to the rest of your material and I'll keep That's track fine. of the questions. Yes, let me know as well as they come in. Electrostatic spark discharge. This one is very interesting for me because it happens to us as humans all the time. Like if we walk around, a lot and then we touch like a door handle or some metal object we get shocked right the same thing happens for oil 
And the thing about oil is that you can have static electricity building up to a point where it can produce a spark. And that's because you have such tight clearances, especially in hydraulic oils. And what happens at that spark is that your temperatures are in excess of 10,000 degrees Celsius. That's a lot, that's quite a lot. And just like we had with oxidation and thermal degradation, we have different stages of ESD. So first of all, you have your static electricity building up to that point to actually produce that spark. And once it produces that spark, you have your temperatures in excess of 10,000 degrees C. And what happens is that you start getting free radicals being formed. And that's when you have polymerization. And then your oil just starts producing varnish, it starts producing sludge. You start to see a lot of insoluble materials being produced with ESD. And one of the things with ESD, a lot of people say with their equipment is that they actually hear the crackling or the, the static going on on the inside of their equipment. So they could stand at the side of a turbine within a safe zone, of course, and they would actually be hearing the crackling. And you would also notice on your filters in particular that you would have burnt membrane because that's where the sparks are being discharged. That's a telltale sign for ESD. Definitely something you want to note. Now, remember we talked about um, classifying the different modes and we may actually have three modes, but I say that we, we're sticking with six because they have different characteristics. This just goes to show that we can't pull microdieseling and ESD under thermal degradation. They are different, different degradation modes. And you can see just from the changes in temperatures, Thermal degradation by over 200, microdiesling over 1,000, electrostatic sparks over 10,000. That's a lot. And they all produce different types of deposits. So, this is just to let you know that there are differences between these three mechanisms. And just to be aware that you have differences that do exist. So, we can't lump them together. Now, this one is very interesting because we're talking about additive depletion as a degradation mode. Now, remember we spoke about in the beginning of this presentation, we talked about the oil being sacrificial. It's really the additives that are sacrificial because they are put into the oil to protect the equipment. And what happens with additive depletion is that you can have additives drop out of your oil and then you need to figure out why did they drop out of your oil, right? And one of the things with that is that if they drop out of the oil, we need to know if they're going to react to different components in the oil, either that are not supposed to be there or supposed to be there, or what, what can happen with that. And with additive depletion, what we like to classify would be the type of deposit. Either it's organic or it's inorganic. With the organic deposits, those can be your rust and your oxidation additives that are dropping off. And what these tend to do is that they tend to react to form primary antioxidant species. So when you start seeing that coming up in your oil analysis, then you can figure out, okay, wait, maybe I may have oil, you know, I may have additive depletion happening here. But your inorganic deposits, on the other hand, those additives, they don't react with anything. And those are um, some additives like that would be your ZDDP, which is used to reduce wear. So those are inorganic deposits. So 
when we're talking about additive depletion, we're thinking about either organic or inorganic deposits. Now, contamination, a lot of people think that contamination is not a mode of degradation, but what I want you to think about is if we, if we were to classify contamination in different categories, we can, usually what we do is air, water, and metals. And contamination would be any foreign object that gets into your oil. And what happens with contamination is that once you have a foreign material in your oil, it can act as a catalyst to promote, promote different types of degradation mechanisms. And it can either lead to oxidation, microdieseling, or thermal degradation. What I want you to think about here, and this is why it's very important to have this as a degradation mechanism, is that if you were to, and I don't want this to happen, if you were to go to the hospital for a heart attack and the doctors there treated you and they gave you medicine for a headache, they've identified the wrong root cause. So it's similar to having contamination as a degradation mode. If you start seeing oxidation in your equipment and you only treat it for oxidation, when you have contaminants getting into your system, causing the oxidation, then you're not treating the real root cause. You actually, you would continuously see oxidation happening in your system because you haven't treated the contamination aspect. But if you treat the contamination aspect, you get rid of that, you're not gonna have the oxidation. So that's why it's important to know that contamination is a mode of lubricant degradation. So we need to be aware of that. And I'm gonna pause a little bit for any questions. Blair, do we have any questions? Oh, oh, we do, yes. Um, oh, we do, okay, that's good. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Can we experience electrostatic spark discharge in grease lubricant also? Hmm, I haven't heard of that in any grease lubrication issues so far, but I'm going to say so far, because based on different things that can happen with greases, greases have thickeners. So usually those thickeners, only when they are compressed and they allow the oil to come out, then you would start seeing the actual lubrication. So it's very difficult to have static charge going on there, but Never say never, because there may be these instances that can promote that environment. So I will do some research on that. That's actually very interesting. Thank you for that question. This person wants to confirm an understanding. Mm -hmm. So he says, so additives can deplete from the oil without reacting with anything. So an additive depletion doesn't necessarily mean it's doing its job. Hmm. Let me see if I can rephrase that for you. Yeah. An additive depletion can happen when you have additives dropping out of the oil. If it drops out of the oil, it can be because of an environmental condition. It can be because of different systematic conditions within your equipment, causing the additive to get to that point that it drops out. In terms of it not if it's not doing its job, it would not do its job if it's dropped off of the oil because it's no longer in the composition of the oil and in that balance to add that level of protection to the oil. 
So if it drops out of the oil, it could be because of your environmental condition, but I don't want to say that it did not do its job because it may have been doing its job before, but it just got forced out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here's a question on thermal degradation. Uh -huh. Is it permanent once it happens or only while the temperature remains elevated? Hmm. I think it would be permanent. And I'm saying this because once you have a lubricant being cracked to that point, there is no rejoining of the lubricant. So once it occurs, that's it. We need to either recondition that oil or get it to the point that it can be used and can still perform its functions. So I would say once it's happened and it's happened throughout the oil, that's when we would need to actually change or move towards that direction? That's a good question okay. though. <laughs> and then this question is actually sort of uh, paired with that. Do you advise okay. adding new oil to existing hmm. oil? What are the advantages so, and disadvantages? So that one is a very tricky question because there are instances where you may be forced to do that in that you, I'm just giving a random scenario here you have a production deadline that you need to meet and your equipment needs to be running so that you can produce that, get to your deadline. So what you would want to do in that case would be add, add new oil to it, but add new oil to a percentage that it actually affects the system in a good way. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like in, in industry we call it sweetening or running change. So you don't have to shut down your equipment uh, change out all your oil and all of that, but it depends on your conditions and what is required of you. So that is, uh, I would say, if we have to do that, that would be in a situation where we sh we cannot shut down or shutting down is not the most viable option. But again, it depends on your condition of your oil. That's what's going to determine your percentage change. So people do like a 33%, some people do a 50%, some people do a 70%, but it depends on the condition of the oil and how much has degraded. So it can be done, but depends on your oil and your situation. I think our questions are going to keep coming, so I think that you should probably keep okay. presenting and we'll, we'll keep rolling them in. All right then, we can work with that. We actually have a, oh. a sub-question. All right, so audience, this is going to be your turn again. Uh, Sonia, do you want to introduce the topic? Yes, so we talked about lubricant degradation. What is the most common practice that you see within your industry? A lot of people, they what they do is that they change the oil immediately and hope and pray for the best. Um, some people say, okay, this oil is not good. We're going to change your oil supplier. That doesn't necessarily work because you haven't, you haven't stopped the problem or you could identify the root cause of the issue. Some people go through that, that method. Some people bring in external parties to exist, to assist. And what happens with external parties is that they bring a fresh set of eyes. So things that are normal to you may not be normal to them. And that helps in, you know, finding out about the situation. Or some people do a lot of random things and they do something else. What do you see within your industry? That's what we want to know from you. 
Okay, what and we have yeah. half the audience voting so far, so oh, I'd love to get a few more answers in there. I know this one is a bit more complicated than the first poll. Yes, it is. And we, we've seen strange things for something else. Um, I, I saw a guy, he popped out the entire module that costed like $100,000. I'm like, it might have been easier to change the oil. But you know, you know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> so we've seen strange things in the something else category. I just wanted to find out from you, what have you seen in the industry? What, what happens on your plant? What is, you know, the norm, the norm for you all? Well, we have uh, almost 70% of the audience voted. Oh, so really? I'm going to close the poll now okay. and share the results. So we have 27% of the audience saying that they change the oil immediately and hope for the best. Yeah, that's a good answer. Mm -hmm. yep. Zero say that they change the oil supplier. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. 60% yep. say identify the root cause. Well done. Well done. <laughs> and 11% say bring in external parties to assist. Mm -hmm. That helps and as well. 2% are saying something else. Oh, I would love to hear what that something else is. But <laughs> we're going on into our presentation. Thank you so much for sharing that information with us because we need the information to actually help what we're going to talk about in a bit. So that, that works for us. Now, we're talking about the different types of lab tests for oxidation because remember, we talked about the degradation modes. We talked about identifying it. But what sort of tests would you have to do? With oxidation, what you would want to do would be an acid number test, a color test, FTIR, MPC, ruler, and RPVOT. With oxidation, you start seeing an increase in your acid number. And once your acid number starts going up past um, 0.3, that's when we know we start having issues. If you start having more acid in your oil, that can affect your wear, your metals in your actual equipment. So you start seeing your wear metals going up. That you start seeing that increasing. So that's one thing you want to be aware of. You start seeing color changes, and the lab actually gives you a scale on which you can uh, chart that. FTIR, just for those who don't know, that would be Fourier transform infrared, and this is a very very powerful test for those of you all who are not familiar with it. It actually um, tells you what particles you have in your oil and each particle has a different frequency. So it helps you determine what is in your oil and that helps you to figure out your root cause. Your MPC, especially for oxidation, MPC stands for membrane patch colometry. And basically it's like a coffee filter and you pour the oil through it. And depending on the patch that remains, the color of the patch, that tells you how much um, varnish you may have in your actual oil. So that helps you to understand that for oxidation. Your ruler test, on the other hand, that actually tells you your percentage of amines and phenols, and those are your antioxidants, that are in your oil. And it gives you that in percentages. So that helps you to chart if you have oxidation going on at what rate you have it going on. Your RPVOT would be your rotating pressure vessel oxidation test. Now, with that, that actually gives you a result in minutes. And what you have to do with that result is uh, chart it against your original value 
and find out how much your percentage is. And once those values were below 25%, we need to start looking at how do we increase this um, antioxidant level in our oil? What do we need to do? And even though I don't have viscosity here, um, if you start seeing your viscosity increasing for oxidation or within your oil, it may be oxidation, but viscosity could increase for a lot of different things. So we don't want to have it as a standalone test to verify that we have oxidation going on. So with thermal degradation, on the other hand, viscosity is one of those tests. Because if we start seeing a decrease of about 5%, it, doesn't, it hasn't gone out of range yet, but we start seeing that decrease, we may want to look at thermal degradation. You would start seeing rapid changes in color, and with your FCIR, you would see carbonaceous deposits being present. With microdieseling, and remember I told you it's a bit like cavitation, so you'd start seeing those uh, cavitation marks on the inside. And one of the very, very helpful things that you can do, especially when you're um, sending an oil sample off to the lab, would be to inspect your component. If you start seeing cavitation present, you want to just note that on your, your sample form that you're sending to the lab, because they would want to know, and that could help them to figure out which test you need to do as well. But with microdieseling, the test that you want to do to verify that you have that present would be the FCIR and the QSA. And what those tests for would be the particles that are in your actual oil. So if you start seeing suits, stars, the sludge, that would be a high implosion. Or if you start seeing your carbon insolubles, that would be a low implosion pressure. Because remember, we talked about the different pressures before. With electrostatic spark discharge, first thing you need to do, filter inspections. Your filter inspection would show your membrane, and if your membrane has different um, burns areas, you definitely know it's ESD. Especially if your um, technicians are out in the field and they start hearing the crackling, that's another good indication as well. But if you do an FCR on QSA, you're looking for varnish sludge in soluble materials. And if you do a ruler, you're looking at a depletion of your antioxidant. So you would start seeing the antioxidant level drop down a bit. Also with ESD, one of um, the tests that you wanna do is DGA, and that's dissolved gas analysis. Now with that dissolved gas analysis, you actually have to take a syringe and extract the oil because you wanna get the gases in it. And if you see acetylene, ethylene, and methane, those are what are gonna confirm that you actually have ESD present. With additive depletion, this is, it is actually very interesting because you can actually tell you're looking for either the presence or the absence of the additives. Because if it drops out, it's no longer gonna be there. So if on your oil test, if you're not seeing the presence, if it's not there, then that means it has dropped off. So that's very interesting in terms of one of the tests that you have to do. With your additives as well, they have different colors and your lab would be able to help you identify what color, you're what color you would be seeing for a change if this additive is no longer present or not. You can also do QSA and your ruler and RP-beauty. Your ruler and RP-beauty, they are critical for your antioxidant additives. And like I mentioned before with the ruler tests, you would have to, um, it would tell you your phenols and your amines in that actual antioxidant additive. So that's an important test. Contamination test. 
Now, if you know you have an oil that's usually golden in color and you're sending it off to the lab but it's green, you definitely have some contaminants in there. So color is definitely one of the first things that you look for with contamination. And you also can do a um, presence of water, fuel or coolant or any foreign material for contamination. I'm gonna stop a little bit just to have some questions and then we're going to go into dealing with degradation. I think we should probably continue on at this point uh -huh. to make sure we cover okay. the, yeah, we have plenty of questions, but let's make oh, sure we yes. cover your materials. Oh, yes. Uh, great. So we're going to dealing with degradation. Now, when we deal with degradation, we have four main things that we want to look at. We have to understand your equipment. First and foremost, if you don't understand your equipment, then you cannot deal with it. Understand your equipment, determine your applicable tests, interpret your results, because people get their oil analysis results and stick it in a drawer and then find out they don't know why you know, it's not working. But after we interpret our results, we're going to implement different measures. In understanding your equipment, what I would like you to do would to break up the equipment into critical, semi-critical, and non-critical. The reason you're doing this is because you want to allocate your resources accordingly. Now, if you have a turbine that's running 24-7 and it's critical for production of your actual product, that's a critical piece of equipment. You'd want to make sure you're doing oil analysis on that every month. Whereas a secondary pump that only comes on twice a month, you're not gonna spend as much money in oil analysis on that pump compared to your critical piece of equipment. So it would be great if you could uh, segment your equipment into critical, semi-critical, and non-critical. And of course, criticality can mean different things to different people, but it depends on your environment and your operations. Now, determining your applicable tests. The tests that I've listed here, those are your general basic tests, and those are the ones that would tell you that you need to do further tests. Of course, your viscosity is your main test. Knowing if you have your changes in your viscosity, that helps you to monitor any sort of any sort of changes, any sort of trends. Once you start seeing a decrease or an increase of more than five percent or less than five percent, that's when we start identifying if we have different things going on in the background. The presence of any contaminant, water, fuel, anything, that is definitely one that we want to get rid of. Then we want to monitor your TAN, that's your total acid number. And it could be your TBN for certain oils because your TBN also influences the amount of acid that you have in your equipment. And of course, you want to monitor your concentration of your additives so you can know if you have additive depletion, um, if you have any wear metals, and of course, your contaminants. Those are your tests that I would definitely want you to do at least monthly. But depending on the criticality of equipment, that frequency can change. I wanted to just go through a quick example of how we would do um, troubleshooting. So let's say you have um, some conditions such, such as you have an increase in viscosity, you have a spike in your acid number, you start seeing a dark color, but there's no water present. If there's no water present, then we know it's not contamination but that increase in viscosity could mean oxidation. That spike in acid number could mean oxidation as well. That dark color could also mean oxidation. 
And if you want to verify, you can do your elemental analysis, RPVOT, ruler, and MPC. Another example would be if you start seeing a decrease in viscosity, a dark color, but if you had like no fuel present, if you have no fuel present, then your decrease in viscosity is not due to fuel. So you can rule out contamination, but it could be thermal degradation. It could be microdieseling or it could be ESD. And if you look at your components, because you, you are available to your components, you can see your components, unlike the lab. If you look at your components and you start seeing the membrane being burnt, then you know it's ESD. If you see cavitation on the inside, it could be microdieseling. And what you would want to do to confirm those would be your QSA, your ruler, and your DGA. And we went through those before. So if you're looking at the measures that you need to implement, now this is the important one. If you're looking at oxidation, you may want to do a sort of chemical filtration. And when I say chemical filtration, what I mean is that, remember we talked about the carboxylic acids, the aldehydes and the ketones and whatnot. If we could filter that out, such that it doesn't react with anything else, then we may be stopping oxidation or stopping the varnish from actually producing. Another thing we talked about a lot throughout this entire thing would be an increase in temperature. One way to reduce your temperatures is adjusting your clearances, but you need OEM approval for that. Uh, another way would be increasing your residence time. So the longer an oil stays into the sump, it's actually gonna reduce the temperature because that's a lot more time to actually cool off. And one way of doing that as well is have a secondary sump so that it flows and gets a longer residence time, or you could increase the size of your sump. But that has to also have approval from your OEM because it may affect your flow rates. Uh, another way that you can do that would be baffle plates. And what the baffle plates do is that they trap the, the air that may be entrained with microdieseling, and it could stop that as well. Another option could be kidney loop filtration, and that removes some of the contaminants so that you know you don't have contamination going on. And even if you install antistatic filters, you can help reduce your ESD, which is an electrostatic spark discharge. So those are just some measures that you can look at. And I think we actually cover all of this in the book, in the lubricant degradation book. So those are good things that you want to check out. And that may be it for in terms of the material. I know we're very close to the end. Can we get some questions in there? Uh, we have lots of oh boy. <laughs> I want to assure everyone uh, that we will respond to you afterward if we don't if we don't get to uh, questions now. Um, so I have just one more. Um, Mm -hmm. One more high-level question to okay. ask right now. Obviously, lubrication is very important uh, to a maintenance program. Right. Um, so, how does a lubrication engineer best work together to together the right plan? Hmm. Can you can you repeat that? Did that come through? Or is my no, mic it off? Did not. Yeah, it it came through, but it it um I got I can I can. <laughs> I can. Yeah, we were having some interruptions there. So yeah. um, 
lubrication, uh, lubrication degradation clearly affects the maintenance of machines and the maintenance strategy. So how does a lubrication engineer best work together with the rest of the team to put together the right plan to incorporate lubrication um, issues into the regular maintenance workflow? Oh, that is a very high level question. Because mm -hmm. what they would have to do is they have to work together to understand your equipment. It goes back to your equipment. At the end of the day, always goes back to your equipment. What is best for the equipment? How can we increase your reliability? So if you're looking at increasing your reliability, are you looking at uh, changing out your fluids, your lubricants? How often are you doing that? How often are you going to monitor in terms of your frequency to get that result back? to your team to feedback to your team to say okay well what i noticed this week i thought i started seeing different wear metals can you check and see if you're seeing that or if, is it just at a microscopic level do we have time to address that so that's how they can work together and it comes back to your oil analysis re results and reporting that back to your team because you have to work together if you don't work together then you're working in a silo and you're not going to get the best results and with yep. reliability, you always have to work with each other with that one. So incorporate your oil analysis results in your team meetings. And sometimes, and I've found like with different suppliers talking to the mechanics and I'm like, I'm seeing chrome in here. And they're like, no, we have no chrome elements in that particular um, component. Something is wrong. The only chrome that we have is some components all the way back. So then we know that there's a leak. So talking to your mechanics, getting everybody involved, helping them to understand what you're trying to achieve will help you all to achieve a lot more. Perfect. So that's the, that's the basic way that I can answer that question because that's a, that's a very detailed high level question there. <laughs> it is, it is. If I can have you forward to the next slide, we're unfortunately going to have to save the rest of the questions for afterward, but uh, we will we will follow up with everyone. Yes. I want to make sure that people know about the next presenter that's going to be joining us on February 3rd. We have another part of the PF curve. Um, motor testing legend Don D'Onofrio of the Snell Group will be joining us on uh, how today's advanced electric motor testing technologies can expose motor failure. So similar. Um, but again, very different. And then if you'll, if you'll forward one more time, okay. uh, after I close today's webinar, there will be a slight pause and then the survey will appear. So hang in there because we'd love to get your feedback on today's session and to find out if you have any other questions and then what else you, what other topics you'd like us to cover in this series, because your feedback is obviously very helpful. So thank you. <clears throat> so much, Sonia. We could have talked for much longer. We're going to have I, to have you back, right? <laughs> because there are far more questions to be answered. So thank you very much for your time today. Uh, I want no, to make sure everyone that. knows that they can contact you directly. Uh -huh. um, and uh, of course, that uh, we advise your book as a good follow-up. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining and thank you everyone for joining today. Unfortunately, I have to close the webinar now, but we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much.